Hello, this is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and welcome to Palliative Care Chat, the podcast brought to you by the online Master of Science and Graduate Certificate Program at the University of Maryland. And I'm super excited to be joined by Dr. Katherine Walker, who is the Senior Clinical and Scientific Director of Palliative Care with MedStar Health and an Associate Professor at the University of Maryland School of Pharmacy. How are you today, Ms. Kat? I'm doing well. What about you? I'm happy to be here. I, if I was any better, I would be twins, I think. So Kat and I, for three or four or five years, have done speed dating with the pharmacy lady. So last month we had one part of our podcast, and today we're going to continue <clears throat> with the second half. The first tip I'd like to talk about is I think sometimes when we treat chronic disorders in end-of-life care, maybe we don't have to go for the gold. I think sometimes good enough is good enough. So when we look at diabetes, certainly for someone who's not um, with a serious illness at the end of the road, we want to target you know, tight blood sugar control as tight as is appropriate for that patient. But often in end-of-life care, we want to loosen the reins a little bit. And sometimes a twice-a-day NPH uh, insulin may be just as good as a once-a-day long-acting. So I just wanted to point out that Walmart has their own brand of insulin called Rely On for regular NPH and 70-30 NPH regular, and it's about $25 a vial versus about 140 a vial for Humulin or Novolin RN or 70-30. And then when you look at the long-acting insulins, they're anywhere from 250 to $500 a vial. That is a lot of money. So my That's point a is... Lot. It's, a, it's an awful lot. Uh, since you know, CMS expects us to pretty much pay for all the drugs now, I just wanted to point this out. So for example, when we have someone who's getting dexamethasone once a day and it causes symptomatic hyperglycemia, the time course profile of that hyperglycemia is entirely consistent with one dose of NPH. So this would be a much more cost-effective way to handle that or if you need some basal insulin using NPH twice a day instead of the long-acting once a day. So that's a nice tip. I think. Another website that I found that I thought was pretty informative is Diabetes Medication Education. It's http colon forward slash forward slash diabetesed.net. It's a lovely website. They've got some little pocket cards um, to educate people about diabetes, and they also have an app called CDE Coach App. So that's a nice um, application as well. And speaking of diabetes, uh, so many of our patients have diabetic neuropathy, and we often turn to using a co-analgesic such as gabapentin, which is probably the number one co-analgesic used in the world. But gabapentin has been a naughty kitten. We are seeing the abuse and misuse of gabapentin rising, particularly in people with a history of substance abuse. Um, so we know that gabapentin abuse is noted in almost 2% of the population, uh, but still, when you look at opioid abusers, the prevalence is anywhere from 3 to 6%, so it's, it's not out of the ballpark. Uh, almost 12,000 reports of gabapentinoid abuse identified from 2004 to 2015, with over 75% of them just in the past three years of that time frame. And substance abuse and psychiatric comorbidities are risk factors. And, of course, pregabalin has been abused also. So, again, if a, a family member tells you, you know, the dog ate the morphine or the dog ate the gabapentinoid, Pentin, number one, I want to see the dead dog to make sure that we're, you know, telling me true here. Uh, but I think we are hearing now people abusing gabapentin and pregabalin. So something else to keep an eye out for. I think so too. And, and I think a lot of times the reports on this are that people were administering higher than recommended doses, which means they would need more frequent refills. So another 
um, you know, red flag that would go up for looking into this a little further and similar risk factors to other agents that they would abuse. So I think it's something to keep on our radar for sure. Totally. Um, so good tip. So this is a quick one, but a good one. And I think we're, I, I never, and I'm always surprised actually, um, I'm like, I'm never surprised. I'm always surprised that how I work in a hospital setting and, you know, we very much underutilize intensals. So I think sometimes um, our, you know, little joke here is like, whoa, that's intense. It's an intensal. Um, but in hospitals, it can be difficult to get access to these medications because it requires special preparation from the pharmacist. And it's not an easy thing to kind of throw in a Pixis machine and, and um, you know, pull out for every patient. And they have to be preloaded, pre-filled, um, and they're concentrated solutions. So I think it's something to continue to work on. In our hospitals, um, we've kind of struck a bargain with the pharmacy that we would um, try to reserve this for patients being discharged or that didn't have IV access to be able to use it. Um, but I'm always, you know, thinking of this as something to avoid um, that next IV line being placed when one blows um, or having to do a subcutaneous infusion. So um, just remember, it's not just your oxycodone and your morphine, 20 milligrams per mil. There's also alprazolam. Dex comes at one per one. Um, diazepam, lorazepam, methadone, our favorite, 10 milligrams per mil, and prednisone. So I think there's a lot of options, and a lot of times when patients can't swallow, people automatically think, oh, we need a line, we need to give them something else. But, you know, if you prop their body up 30 degrees, you can put up to, you know, a milliliter and a half in their buccal cavity. And we know that the more lipophilic medications get absorbed better directly into the bloodstream, but even if they're not that lipophilic and they end up trickling down, it's the same as a PO absorption would be, and that's okay with us, right? Absolutely. And it always kind of kills me when I hear about a patient in our inpatient hospice unit, and they've been in the unit for a few days, they were having a pain crisis, they get them stabilized on an IV infusion, and then the team will say, well, we want to send them home today, what do we do now? Well, why didn't you think of starting them on the methadone or the morphine and tensile a couple of days ago to get them stabilized before you send them home? So I think we, this is a great alternative to IVs, particularly at home. Absolutely. And that's why we um, kind of got a little bit upstream in the hospital setting because if you can show families that it's working and show them how it's being done in the hospital, it leads to a much better transition. And you know we're all about good transitions in care. Absolutely. Totally. All right. So switching gears a little bit. So you have heart disease and your knees hurt. What's that all about? We have been waiting and waiting and waiting breathlessly for the results of the precision trial, which is where they compared the cardiovascular safety of celecoxib, which is a COX-2 selective inhibitor, with ibuprofen and naproxen, which of course are non-selective inhibitors. There are almost 25,000 patients in this study with osteoarthritis, which was 90% of them, or RA, 10%, and established cardiovascular disease, or at increased risk of developing cardiovascular disease, and they were randomized to receive either celecoxib 100 milligrams twice a day, ibuprofen 600 three times a day, or naproxen 375 twice a day. <clears throat> the mean treatment duration was almost two years, so 20 months, and the mean follow-up was uh, almost three years, 34.1 months. About half these patients were taking low-dose aspirin at base time. The primary outcome they were looking at was cardiovascular death, including hemorrhagic, non-fatal MI, or non 
fatal CVA. Now, what's interesting is almost 70% of patients stopped the study drug during the study, and 27.4% stopped it during the follow-up. So this is a very difficult trial to do. So they had to enroll huge numbers, just get numbers at the end so they could do data analysis. So they did break it down by intent to treat and then people who were on treatment all the way to the bitter end. And what they found was looking at this primary outcome, looking all the way to the end, celecoxib was 1.7% of people achieved that primary outcome, which was cardiovascular death and a non-fetal heart attack or a stroke. Ibuprofen was 1.9% and naproxen was 1.8%. The risk of GI events was significantly lower with celecoxib than either of the non-selective ones. And the risk of renal events was significantly lower with celecoxib than ibuprofen, but celecoxib was not significantly less than naproxen. So this is an interesting finding because the naproxen people petitioned the FDA to be able to put in their labeling and marketing that they were the non-steroidal with the lowest risk of heart disease. But now this study, which was a non-inferiority study, has shown that celecoxib was non-inferior with regard to the heart attack and the stroke. Now, this study was heavily criticized. Of course, this is a very difficult study to pull off with all these patients. One of the criticisms is the dose of celecoxib was limited to 200 a day, where we know a lot of people are taking 200 milligrams twice a day. Uh, So these are lower than doses that have been previously associated with cardiovascular toxicity. Interestingly, the ibuprofen and naproxen doses, they were not allowed to be increased. Uh, And we also know that ibuprofen and naproxen, but not celecoxib, inhibit aspirin binding to the platelet COX-1, so the cardioprotective effects of aspirin may have been blunted in the patients who were getting the non-selective non-steroidal. So the conclusion was the researchers state that celecoxib is non-inferior to ibuprofen and naproxen from a cardiovascular perspective, although others refute this and say, you really can't make that conclusion because celecoxib, the dose was too low to support that conclusion. But I think it's a very interesting study, and to be certain, it's one that won't be repeated. So at least it's, I think, partially put some of our fears to rest. For sure. For sure. Yeah. That's a that's a complex tip you had there. I know. That's a tough one. Um these are a couple um quick ones. One is just looking at, you know, we came from the my last tip was about intensols. Um so I think maybe I'm passionate uh this session about non oral uh dosage formulations or what I what, what else can we use here? Um but this one is about using levetiracetam subcutaneously. Um, so I think the, when you think about this, the conversion is one-to-one, um, and the manufacturer is German and said that it should be diluted in at least 100 milliliters of D5 um, or other diluent and administered twice a day over 15 minutes. Um, so there's a couple other studies out there um, that looked at different ways to administer it. Um, but either way, there's a couple good references about using it subcutaneous, and I think this is something that um, we don't always think of doing and would be a good trick to keep in, in the back pocket. Absolutely. Um, but a couple of the other studies, one um, looked at continuous infusion as well, um, so that's something that they administered actually over 24 hours and um, had good success with it. The other sub-Q option out there is sub-Q methadone, and I think this is one that we think of, um, you know, we use methadone a lot, don't always think of sub-Q dosing, and using half of the oral dose would be the kind of dosing conversion you'd use. Um, it's been reported intermittent and continuous infusion, um, but some of the things you see in the literature that there's a risk of irritation, um, and people have done all kinds of things to mitigate these risks. So they've looked at uh, frequently changing the infusion sites, 
um, flushing the site with normal saline, limiting the doses to like 30 milligrams or so. And some people have been adding dex or hyaluronidase to the um, you know, infusion to prevent the irritation and whatnot. Um, but there's kind of conflicting things because there's also studies not using a lot of these mitigating factors and saying that they had good success. Um, but either way, I think for short-term use, um, there is data to support using that methadone you know, this might be a good option. Although, you know, for most of our practice, I think using the buccal route is still probably ideal um, considering the volumes and doses that most of our patients need are very low. Mm-hmm. Um, the other one that I think is useful, and, um, you know, we w- work a lot within our health system with, um, as many people do with advanced heart failure population, um, and often we're thinking about when the oral loop diuretics are just not being, are are not useful and they're not getting the diuresis that we um, were hoping for, that using subcutaneous Lasix is um, an option. The concentration is 10 milligrams per mil, so if you need a large volume, it can be a little bit of a challenge, but a great tip if you want to, you know, kind of keep that patient and um, do it in a home setting. Um, that's an option. And I wish we were, we're on a podcast right now, so it's not, you cannot do this. But the pictures of the dogs that we had, you just, you have to, you have to come see it in person, I think. Absolutely. Yeah, it's very cute. What kind of dogs are those two? Look at them. One is like a, like a bulldog, maybe. What is that bulldog? bulldog? Maybe like a greyhound or something. So Yeah, and then he turns right into a greyhound. It's a magical thing right after Lasix dose. Whoop, that is I wish I could lose weight like that. I think my favorite Lasix tip is um, oral Lasix. Taking it on an empty stomach doubles the bioavailability. And how many people don't know that? They take it like after breakfast, for example, and then they wonder why it doesn't work. Yeah. How many, okay. it, it's such, maybe that needs to be another tip of um, uh, taking things with food because it's amazing how many people you talk to that say, oh, I'm going to take all my meds with breakfast. I don't want to upset my stomach. And even for medications that would not, are not possible to upset your stomach. Absolutely. But for Lasix, that'd be a bad idea. That's right. All right, so it would be like a day without sunshine if you got up and did not get an email from some source saying another horrible thing associated with the proton pump inhibitors. It is among the most widely prescribed drugs worldwide and in the U.S., and side effects for anywhere from four months to two years of treatment include things like atrophic gastritis, carcinoma, C. difficile, fractures, hypomagnesemia, interstitial nephritis, and B12 deficiency. Well, here's another one, a Danish nationwide observational study looking at preclinical studies showed that PPIs reduced the production of nitric oxide leading to endothelial dysfunction and now it's been linked to cardiovascular disease. So their study uh, showed a dose-related increase for ischemic stroke for all four of the proton pump inhibitors studied but no increased risk for the H2 blockers. So their conclusion was uh, regard these results as preliminary but this study adds to the evidence questioning the cardiovascular safety of the PPIs. Uh, And then uh, this next... uh, I have a slide here said, shoot me in my lower left lobe. This is a study from the University of Finland from 2005 to 11 with 65,000 patients <clears throat> looking at the risk of pneumonia in Alzheimer's patients uh, and comparing it with the use of denepazil, oral rivastigmine, transdermal rivastigmine, and galantamine, and memantine. Uh, memantine, the um, hazard ratio was 1.6 for developing pneumonia as opposed to denepazil. Rivastigmine transdermal patch was 
0.15, and oral rivastigmine and galantamine were not associated with an increased risk. So uh, just worried about the side effects of drugs, the PPIs. I think my big take-home message there is let's just make sure the patient really does need it. So we see patients in the hospital who get put on a PPI for prevention of stress ulcer, and then they get switched from IV to oral, and then they get sent home on oral. And we're seeing this accumulating body of evidence about adverse effects associated with PPIs. And again, we could talk for three days about when should we stop the drugs for Alzheimer's disease. Once someone, at least in my practice, is hospice appropriate, I believe those medications don't bring a lot to the table. And we do know that Alzheimer's patients have a very high prevalence of pneumonia, so yet another compelling reason to rethink those medications. Do you agree with that one, Dr. Walker? I definitely do. Um, I think that that's, PPIs are one on medication reconciliation on discharge, I think get overlooked all of the time. They're seen as kind of a low-risk medication, mm-hmm. and I think it's something we should put back up on the radar for sure. Absolutely. I like that um, Canadian website, deprescribing.org, and they've got oh, that very nice um, flow sheet for several drugs, antihyperglycemic drugs and benzodiazepines, but they've got a very nice one on the appropriate prescribing of PPI, so deprescribing.org, wonderful website. Yeah, the PPI one's very clear. We can print it out and like wallpaper the hospital with it. Love it. So my, I think this is our last tip here tonight, um, is is about symptomatic bradycardia. So using these, um, you know, most people believe when you use these um, eye drops for glaucoma that it has just a topical effect and it's not absorbed. But actually, fun fact, 80% of it is actually systemically absorbed. Um, so it avoids first-pass metabolism, and so you, you really have to be careful. So although it will give you lower concentration, um, say with Timolol, than an oral beta blocker, um, it can still induce cardiovascular side effects, um, all of the same types of side effects that you would see, and I think you really have to be careful. So this is another one. You know, you can be totally overlooked on, you know, medication reconciliation. A lot of times patients forget to tell you their own eye drops. It's not seen as kind of a medication, um, but definitely something that can um, come into a, an effect for our patients. So something to keep on our radar, especially in our older adults that are um, very sensitive to that or that have underlying uh, cardiovascular diabetes. And, you know, I'm the worst offender. When I look at a patient's medication regimen, I just kind of blow off all the ophthalmic. So I guess I shouldn't be doing that, should I? Mm-hmm. No, look a little closer at those. I think I should. I'm getting a little tacky. We all we all about it. I know, we all need to get out our magnifying glass and take a look at those meds that that's slip through the holes. Absolutely. Well, I would like to thank my guest, Dr. Kat Walker, and joining me in uh, doing a recap of some of our speed dating tips. And I would like to thank you for listening to the Palliative Care Chat podcast. This is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and this presentation is copyright 2017, University of Maryland. For more information on our completely, completely awesome online Master of Science and Graduate Certificate program in Palliative Care, or for permission requests regarding this podcast, please visit graduate.umaryland.com dot edu forward slash palliative. Thank you.